Well, this week, Alicia and I were listening to a podcast, uh, and one of the stories that was referenced in the podcast was a study, a poll that was done uh, by a group from Arizona Christian University uh, and just a few months ago. And George Barna of the Barna Research Group was overseeing this poll of about 600 millennials. Now, not a huge sample size, but 600 millennials between the ages of 18 and 37. So that basically 19, 20-year gap uh, is the generation that they call millennials. And here's some of the interesting things that they found out of that poll. Regarding mental health, 29% of younger millennials, 18 to 25, indicated that they have some type of mental disorder. When it comes to faith, a record-breaking 40% of young adults fit into the don't category. They don't believe, they don't know, or they don't care if God exists. Even though a majority of them have a favorable view of Jesus Christ in the Bible, only one-third of millennials claim to believe in God. Three out of four say they are still searching for purpose in this life. Regarding politics, close to half say they prefer socialism to capitalism. When it comes to politics among millennials, liberal and progressives outnumber conservatives 40 to 29. And those who identify as Democrat outnumber Republicans 2 to 1. Lifestyles and relationships, most millennials reject the existence of absolute moral truth. And instead of identifying feelings, experiences, and advice from family and friends as their most trusted sources of moral guidance... And a prevailing millennial belief is that there is no absolute value associated with human life. According to the report, 30% of millennials identify as LGBTQ, and this increase to 39% among young groups ages 18 to 24. So these are kind of shocking statistics. They're, They're jarring, but it's kind of a confirmation of things that we've been seeing and hearing for the last couple years. And if it continues unchecked, then we're in for some darker days ahead. If we think things are strange out there right now, this is the group of people. This is the generation that's going to be shaping our country. Uh, Last week, we got into a little bit of an overview of Habakkuk, and I mentioned that he was just one of several prophets that was on the scene at this time during a very dark time in Judah's history. And Evil and violence were running rampant, and these prophets, they were trying to steer the the country back on track because they had seen the country when it was godly. Under King Josiah, King Josiah, when he was 20 years old, uh, they were remodeling the temple, and they found a copy of the law. Uh, The times were so bad that they didn't even have any copies of the scripture. And they find the scroll, and they bring it to Josiah, and they're so excited to read the law. But as they do, they start to weep once they realize how far from God's instructions they've become. And so Josiah starts to purge the land of evil, and a huge reformation breaks out, a revival But unfortunately, it didn't get into the hearts of the people because there was an outward reformation, but there wasn't an inward regeneration. Because when Josiah died, he died in battle. Um, I think he was fighting King Nico of the Egyptians. Uh, But when he died, his son took over, Jehoiakim. And when he took over, the country plunged back into idolatry. And here's what the Lord had to say about Jehoiakim in Jeremiah 22. Said, therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or Ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, his majesty. 
With the burial of a donkey he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. That's what God had to say about Jehoiakim. Not a great um, epitaph. (laughs) I read an old article by the Stanford Observer this week, and it said, when it came to to rearing children, every society is 20 years away from barbarism. 20 years. 20 years is all we have to take this next generation and raise them up the way that they should go. Now, that was a secular article that was talking about the importance of parenting and raising our kids, but even they realize how vital that is to a society. And when we ignore the spiritual well-being of our kids, then our sin nature will take over depravity. Uh, even if you look at, I, don't, I never understood this, but when, you know, the prophet Eli, uh, Eli was one of the first prophets, and while he was a godly man, he neglected the spiritual uh, upbringing of his sons, and his sons turned out to be wicked. But Eli trained Samuel, and Samuel grew up to be a prophet, but he did the same thing. He neglected the spiritual training of his kids, and they turned out to be wicked as well. King Josiah was a godly man, but for some reason, he neglected this area, and it had devastating effects, not just on his family, but on the country as well. And so in Jeremiah 36, God talked to him and said, listen, I want you to write these instructions down on a scroll, a message of judgment, and I want you to take it to Jehoiakim. And he said this, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster I intend to do to them, so that everyone may may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin." Now, Jeremiah was banned from coming to the castle. Um, Jehoiakim said, I don't want to hear from that guy. You better keep him out of here. If I see him, I'm going to kill him. So he said, I can't go. So he gave the scroll to a guy named Baruch, and he told everyone that when they are gathered there, I want you to read it in their hearing. And so Baruch takes it, and they come to the temple, and all these people are gathered. He reads it in front of them, and then some of uh, the king's men, some of Jehoiakim's men, take the scroll, and they take it to the king. And what happens is that as they are reading it to the king, he starts to tear off portions of it and throwing it in the fire. And so the whole thing got burned up. They tell Jeremiah, he writes the whole thing out again, another warning, and he does it again. He burns the whole scroll rejecting the word of the Lord. It would seem as though that the messages that are going out to the millennials of today, the generation of today, are being thrown in the fire, so to speak. They're being rejected. We don't know exactly when Habakkuk wrote this, but there was about a 25-year period of time of when the Babylonians were being raised up and when Judah fell. And he's watching the moral decay of his country for some time, and he takes his complaint to the Lord. In his frustration, he takes his complaint to God. Uh, this will be a relatively short study. Uh, There's only three chapters in Habakkuk, and we're going to do all of chapter one today. So we will read Habakkuk one. We're just going to read the four, first four verses to start out. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So this has been going on for some time, and the prophet 
shouts his complaint to God. When he says cry, the word there in the Hebrew is screams. He screams his complaint to God. How long are the wicked going to prosper here? This is a question that David asked. Jeremiah is asking the same question at the same time. Job asked this question and Abraham asked it. Abraham said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Won't you save the righteous and punish the wicked? Look at all the brokenness. Look at all the violence that surrounds us. Um, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to try to do is, when sometimes when we look at these Old Testament books, it becomes kind of difficult to grasp and bring it into modern day application. So there are lots of similarities between our day and what's going on in Judah at this time. So I'm going to make some correlations between what he's seeing and what we're seeing now. Between 2019 and 2020, so whatever you want to call normal back in 2019 before all this stuff started to 2020, our country saw a 30% increase in violent crime. 30%. That's the highest percentage increase in over 100 years. The FBI reported that murders went from 16,425 in 2019 to 21,570 in 2020. Violence is out of control. And while you know, parts of the country, they want to defund the people that are actually trying to keep the violence in check. It's almost as if they are okay with more violence. Jesus said that Satan, our enemy, comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He comes to steal your joy, comes to steal your hope, comes to kill you spiritually, physically if he can, and he comes to destroy our families and our relationships. Look what it did to Josiah's family. I mean, it destroyed his family and not just his family, but the country as well. Our nation has veered off track dramatically because fathers have neglected their responsibility to train up their family, to be present, to raise them up the way that they should go. Um, this is really the first battleground. The home is the first battleground. That's where we have to start winning the battles if our country's going to get back on the right track. Um, it used to be very subtle. These attacks on the family in our country used to be very subtle. They're not subtle anymore. They're quite open. And it wasn't subtle in Habakkuk's day either. And he's asking God, why are you making me look at this evil? How long shall I cry to help and you won't hear me? Uh, listening and hearing back in that culture carried with it the connotation of action. If you hear something, you should take action about it. Uh, Jesus would end some of his parables that he would tell people. He would say, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, that might sound kind of strange. I mean, people standing around may have said, Jesus, we all have ears. That's kind of strange thing to say. We can all hear you, but what Jesus meant was, if you hear it and you understand it, then you need to be doing it. That was the point. And the prophet says, God, it doesn't seem like you're hearing me because it doesn't look like you're doing anything. Iniquity, wrong, destruction, violence, strife, contention, all of these things, these six problems that he lists out lead to four dire situations. And you tell me if this sounds like something that's happening in our day and age. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. And justice goes forth perverted. Sounds like modern day. Statistics given in 2019 say that the average death row inmate is in prison for 22 years. 22 years. The law seems paralyzed or frozen at times. 
people are convicted of crimes and they turn around and then they're let back out on the streets, kind of like a revolving door. Uh, I was listening to the radio the other day coming home and they were talking about the police station downtown and how the police station downtown was located right next to a business that employed um, disabled people, blind people, disabled people to work there. And that was part of their culture. And so when these people would leave, when they would go for the day and they would be sitting outside waiting for the bus or for somebody to pick them up, they were letting out these criminals out of jail right next to them. And they were robbing and assaulting, right? These dis- disabled people that are just sitting there waiting for the bus. So justice is not going forth in our country. The wicked surround the righteous. In Psalms 34:15, David says, "The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry." So Habakkuk says, "What gives, God? I feel like I am in the minority. I feel like I'm in the minority. Do you ever feel like you're in the minority where you are? Justice goes forth perverted. If it does go out, it goes forth crooked. The courts no longer work, is what he's saying. The courts no longer work. It is estimated. I found two numbers on this. I found one number that says there's nearly 40 million lawsuits in the United States every year. Another number I found was 100 million lawsuits filed every single year in America. Let's just take the low one, 40 million. And that's spread across 1.5 million registered lawyers. So 40 million for 1.5 million lawyers. Our society is corrupt and evil and wicked. We watch court TV shows for entertainment. And they're quite popular. That's kind of a that's kind of a bad testament. We sit around and watch court shows. Habakkuk says, God, how long can you tolerate this business of evil to flourish right under your nose here in Judah? From personal relationships to the government, everything has been tainted. One commentary that I read this week said the nation's problems had been caused by leaders who wouldn't obey the law. The rich were exploiting the poor and then escaping punishment by bribing officials. The law was being ignored or twisted and no one seemed to care. Does that sound familiar? We have leaders that pass laws but exempt themselves from it. We have lobbyists that pay people to do what they want to be done. Leaders who will not obey the laws that they pass. This was happening in Habakkuk's day and it's happening today in America. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, writes this, The kingdom was broken into parties and factions that were continually biting and devouring one another. That sounds like our culture. It's sad to see bad men warming their hands at those flames which are devouring all that is good in a nation and stirring up the fire too. They're warming themselves at the fire and they're fanning the flames too. Justice. This concept in the Old Testament, the word justice is used 425 times in the Old Testament. What happens when there's no justice? When there's no justice, the people fear. There's fear when there's no justice. If there's no justice, you need to be very careful about where you go, what you do, what you say. And then fear begins to grip a community or a city. I tell you what, if half of the police force walks off the job in Chicago or L.A., the people will live in fear. And they'll be careful where they go and what they do. Um, and when you live in fear, things don't get better just because you hide. We've learned this over the last couple years. If you're fearful and you stay and you don't go outside, you don't go anywhere, then you start to uh, medicate those fears with either addictions or anger or disappearing into fantasy worlds of television or online. You name it, it only makes the problem worse. This is why the writer of Hebrews said, let us not neglect meeting together, right? But encourage each other. 
all the more as you see the day approaching. And the day is the day that Jesus is coming back. Feels like he's coming back pretty soon. I think in our lifetime, I would believe that. If I'm wrong, then you could put me in the group with all the great theologians that believe that they were coming, he was coming back in their lifetime too. I'm okay with that. So what are we supposed to do? Paul wrote this in Philippians. We just finished this study. We are to not be anxious for anything, but we're supposed to pray, right? What should our response be when we feel surrounded by evil and fear, whether it's in our jobs, whether it's in our family, whether it's in our city? Habakkuk shows us what to do. We are to cry out to the Lord. Don't cry out to other people. That's the temptation. The temptation is to grab a listening ear and to cry out to them or to get on social media. There's a lot of crying on Facebook. Don't do that. Take it to the Lord in prayer first, right? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Fear may fill our world, but it doesn't have to fill our hearts. It's always going to knock on the door, but you don't have to let it in. You don't have to invite it in for dinner and certainly don't give it a place to sleep for the night. Uh, The song last night as I was sitting here uh, just thinking about this was Because he lives, the old hymn, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future. How does it go? Because I know who holds the future. In his hands. Life is worth the living just because he lives. (laughs) I was listening. David Crowder has a version of that you should listen to. It's awesome. The promise of Christ is simple. We can fear less tomorrow than we do today. And certainly don't take it with you. Let it down. Leave it outside the door. Don't take it with you. There was a a story of a mom who came home from grocery shopping, and the house was eerily quiet. She had four kids, and it was quiet. And if any of you parents know, when things are eerily quiet, it's usually not good. And so she walked into the living room, and four kids were sitting there in a circle in the living room, and as she looked, each of them had a baby skunk. And she saw them, and she was like, ah, kids, run! And each of them picked up a skunk and ran in a separate direction. As you can imagine, the skunks didn't like that too much. So don't take it with you. Don't take it with you. Now God answers Habakkuk and his pleas for justice. This is picking it up in verse 5. We're going to go through 11. This is the Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the, they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So God says, Habakkuk, you think things are bad here. We need you to widen your vision. Look around you. Things are bad everywhere. All people have rebelled against me. Eight billion people in our day. Eight billion sinners rebel against God. You might say, well, Nathan, some of those are Christians. Like Christians, the biggest you know, religion in the world. There was a study that was just done a couple months ago 
of 3,106, to be exact, Christians, and this is again in the millennial category, 60% of these millennial Christians believe that there are other paths to God besides Jesus. 60%. That's scary. That's scary. Look around. It looks bad here. It's bad everywhere. But don't just look in front of you. Uh, The same word that Habakkuk uses when he says, look, God, God uses the same word and says, Habakkuk, you look. You look around. And what I'm doing, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. And so presumably, Habakkuk says, try me. Tell me what's going on, because then God tells him. And we understand the idea that some things seem too good to be true, but this one seems too bad to be true because he's bringing in the Babylonians. God is a God of mercy, but he's also righteous and he's also holy. And there will be consequences to unrepentant sin and rebellion. God says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians. I'm going to use them as my tool to punish Judah. As parents, we told our kids, you can choose your actions, but you can't choose your consequences, right? And I have to think that Habakkuk was sitting there thinking, listen, maybe a coup, maybe a coup, an overthrow would do it, or a famine, maybe a famine would drive people back, or a plague, a plague usually drives people back to you, God, so let's do one of those things, and God says, no, I'm using a secular, wicked nation as my tool to bring judgment on my people, and not just to punish them, but to carry them off actually into exile, and the people of Jesus's day were wrestling with these same issues, right, like God, how could you let this hypocritical religious leaders to load people down with these burdens that they couldn't carry? And how could God allow a pagan nation like the Romans to rule over them? Like Habakkuk, God's people were tired. They were weary. They were confused. They needed to know that God still cared about them and that he could still do something, which is exactly what Jesus did when he came here. The things that Jesus said, the words that he spoke, and the things that he did let people know God still cares about you and his power hasn't diminished one iota. Jesus performed all kinds of miracles to let them know his power hadn't diminished. He was calling them back into relationship. Jesus reminded them that even when circumstances seem beyond our ability to comprehend, our comfort comes from a relationship in an all-powerful God. That's where our comfort comes from. Jesus offers true rest, true comfort to those who actually come to him. You actually have to, actually have to approach him to make the effort. He's the good shepherd that leads us behind, beside still waters, even if those still waters run in the presence of our enemies. He's going to lead us beside those still waters, as David writes in Psalm 23. If we listen very closely, in a world right now that is doing its best to drown his voice out, if we pursue him, we're going to hear his voice calling us into rest and into peace, and we need it now more than ever. Listen to the attributes that God uses for these Babylonians. They are a bitter and hasty nation. Some translations say fierce or impetuous. They had a terrifying reputation, and they're coming their way. They were ruthless, they were brutal, they moved quickly, and they devoured everything as they went. Their justice and their dignity go forth from themselves. Basically, they were the law. They did what was right in their own eyes. This is why they were so dreaded, because they promoted themselves, their agenda, their law, whatever they wanted to do, and they were going to be God's tool to bring the fruit of unrighteousness to Judah's doorstep. The people were not honoring God. People in our country today 
not honoring God. Their horsemen press proudly on. Pride is practically baked into the psyche of America today, right? We're proud of our accomplishments. We're proud of our freedom and our liberties. But it can be a destructive thing when pride becomes one of your defining characteristics. People, they use the word progressive, right? They use the word progressive, which is really just the same thing as pride. We're making progress. They're usually making progress in the wrong direction towards unrighteousness. I haven't seen much yet of people that use the term progressive that is moving towards God. It's usually moving the other way. Um, I heard a, a pastor say once, he said, if it's new, it ain't true. And if it's true, it ain't new. If it's true, it ain't new. And if it's new, it ain't true. They come for violence and their faces are forward. They're, they're bent on it. They came for the fight. Their faces are determined and brazen. Alicia and I went this week to the movie theater to pick up our tickets for The Chosen. Did you bring the tickets with you? Okay. If you want your tickets today, you can pick them up. 51 of us going to see The Chosen. I'm excited. Um, And when I was there, I kind of jokingly said, you know, hey, you want to catch a movie? Uh, But as we look at the movies that we're showing, there wasn't really any good options. Uh, I thought it was interesting because as you look at rated R movies, there are so many that get pumped out into our culture today. Um, Rated R movies are not the money makers, which is kind of crazy. PG and PG-13 movies make twice what rated R movies make. So you think Hollywood would be all about that because that's where the money is. You restrict your audience, obviously, when you're down to a rated R movie, but yet they keep pumping out violence day after day. Uh, I looked at what was the number one top grossing rated R movie of all time. This will surprise you. It was actually The Passion of the Christ. Passion of the Christ, number one R-rated movie. R-rated because of the violence. The worst violence, the worst sin that mankind ever committed, crucifying the Son of God. Number two, Deadpool. That was the number two one. So number one, 370 million for Passion of the Christ, 363 million for Deadpool. Their God is their own strength. What do people worship in our culture today? People worship power, they worship money, they worship status. These are the strengths that people pride themselves in, and we actually bow down to it. I say, Nathan, we don't bow down to it. But what I mean by that is that our whole worldview revolves around these things, around money, around power, around status. This is why people bow down at the altar of entertainment. That is the God of our day, entertainment. And those are the richest people of our day because that's where we give our money. We have our American idols is what we have today. And these are indictments of the Babylonians by God who is using them as his tool to punish Judah. Last week, we talked about why does evil, uh, why is it allowed to exist? Why does God allow evil to exist? And the bottom line is to accomplish his purposes, to the praise of his glory is what is said. God told Habakkuk, you're not going to believe it if I tell you. And he was right. Habakkuk had a hard time with it. Listen to the prophet's response. This is in verse 12, 12 through 17. This is the rest of the chapter. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at the traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up a man more righteous than he? You made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. 
He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk is questioning God again, and it's okay to question God. It's okay, because that's how we learn about God. If our perception of God isn't matching up with what's going on in the world, it should drive us back to the standard, the scriptures, to change our perception. Because unfortunately, what happens most of the time is people change their God to match their perception. They don't change their perception because they're not going to the standard. Listen to how it reads in the message translation. God, you're from eternity, aren't you? Holy God, we're not going to die, are we? God, you chose Babylonians for your judgment work? Rock solid God, you gave them the job of discipline? But you can't be serious. You can't condone evil. So why don't you do something about this? Why are you silent now? This outrage, evil men swallow up the righteous and you stand around and watch? God, they are more evil than we are. This would be like Afghanistan or Iraq or China invading the United States and God saying, that's part of my plan because I need to, you know, I need to humble you guys. You guys are not listening. You're not following my ways. You're not honoring me. And we would say, God, they're worse than us. I'm not sure if that's the case, but we might say that. Now let's bring it down to street level. We may not say this with our mouths, but we certainly think it from time to time. We might say, God, I know I'm not as bad as that person. I know I'm not as bad as that person. And yet, they get the new car, or they get the new job, or the house. And I happen to know for a fact they don't even go to church. They're more evil than I am. And Habakkuk says something here that looks like it goes against what we were talking about last week. He said, Lord, your eyes are too pure to behold evil. You can't look at wrong. And he can't look at it favorably, right? He cannot condone it. That's what we talked about last week. But he does observe it. And it exists to accomplish his purposes. He brings judgment and willful sin and unrepentant sin. He calls it into account. Let's talk about grace and mercy for a sec. Because... Uh, there's a tendency, and we see this a lot in our culture right now, for people to have a wrong perception of grace. Um, people think, we're under grace, right? We're under grace now. We have freedom. We can live however we want. Uh, but that's not the definition of grace. The definition of grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, but grace is getting what you deserve. What are we getting that we don't deserve? Well, we're getting forgiveness, we're getting his righteousness, his holiness, heaven. These are things. That is what grace is talking about. Many people today think that grace means that they can sin without consequence. But that God loves them and forgives them no matter what they do. But grace never changes the way that God feels about sin. Never changes the way he feels about it. He hates sin because it's destructive and it's harmful to the people that he loves. Um, I heard this saying once that said, sin isn't for forbidden because... It's bad. It's bad because it's forbidden. It's not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. Let me get that right. It's not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. Kind of like wet paint. You know, put the sign on it. Don't touch wet paint. It's not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. That's the reason why God hates sin. Um, 
there's the part where in Romans where Paul is writing to that church and the people there are talking about the grace of God and it says that, you know, where sin is, grace abounds all the more, right? There's more grace to cover the sin. And so the people were like, well, maybe to increase the grace, maybe we should just sin more. And Paul's like, what? No, no, God forbid, don't do that. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So at this point, Habakkuk does what we all do from time to time, and he says, uh, God, let me rephrase the question. Like, maybe you didn't understand what I was asking, so let me use a metaphor for this um, to kind of help you out. And he begins to talk about wicked fishermen. These are Fisher, fishers of men, but not the way that Jesus was describing it, certainly. Verse 15, he says, He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. He brings up the fish one by one with a hook, with a group, as a net, and he just brings up the hordes with a dragnet. It's ironic because now we use that word dragnet. Um, and we associate that with the police, right? With law enforcement. They spread out. They create a perimeter wide enough so that nothing falls through. But here he's using it as a metaphor for how the evil are picking up all the righteous. Um, And they do all this and they're happy about it. Then they make sacrifices and offerings to their weapons of war. He says nets. They're not fishermen. If you know where Iraq is current day, there's not a lot of water around there. So they're not actually fishermen, but he says that there is a metaphor. They are sacrificing to their nets, which is their weapons of war. They worship their power and their military prowess. Um, I'm not saying this to be unpopular. We love our men and women in the military. We just had Veterans Day, which is awesome. And total respect and honor those people that lay down their lives to give us the freedom that we have. But we really have to be careful that we're not putting our pride, our faith, our hope in our military because it should be in God. And what they're doing, one of the wicked things that they're doing is putting their, all their trust and they're worshiping their military prowess. And because of it, they live in luxury. They have it easy. They're enjoying everything they want. There used to be a saying that crime doesn't pay, right? Actually, crime does pay. Pays pretty good. In 2008, the rate of arrest for serious felony crimes reported to the police was about 22%. That's it. But because we know that there are twice as many crimes committed as get reported, then that takes it down to 11%, cut in half. So crime actually does pay in our society. So it sounds kind of depressing, but Habakkuk says, God, is this the way it's going to go forever? Like, are they just going to keep hauling people up in their nets? And as we're going to hear next week in chapter 2, God, thankfully, says, no, it's not going to happen. I am going to judge the Babylonians. That time is coming. But right now, I'm going to punish my people. Questions and lamenting, uh, which is what Habakkuk is doing, these are necessary parts of a believer's journey. Um, We could even call them gifts because questioning God is learning about him. That's how we learn about God, asking questions. And how would we know his goodness if we didn't know sadness, if we didn't know the pain of grief and mourning? One-third of the Psalms are prayers of lament and mourning. The entire book of Job and Lamentations are dedicated to expressing the confusion 
of pain and unbearable suffering to the faithful. That's what they're talking about. Here's an important point about these protests. Your protests can either be faithful or they can be unfaithful. What do I mean by that? People like David and Jeremiah and Job, even Jesus, were resolute in their faithfulness even when the Lord's response wasn't what they wanted to hear. They were resolute in their faithfulness even when God's response wasn't what they wanted to hear. The faithful protest begins with an attitude that continues to address God. God, how could you allow this? Let's say that again. Faithful protest begins with an attitude that continues to address God. Unfaithful protest begins with an impersonal and judgmental attitude. How could God allow this? It's impersonal. It's judgmental. Make sure that when we're lamenting, when you're mourning, and when we're complaining to God, when we're taking our complaint to God, that you're bringing your protest in a faithful way. Does that make sense? Because it focuses the question in the form of a conversation with God, a loving creator who accompanies us through suffering. He's going to go with us. And in his time, he is going to make everything right. He is going to heal. He is going to bring victory and restoration. We can actually find hope along the way, the road of mourning and faithful protest, which is what Habakkuk's going to find. He has hope in the face of judgment because he has a history of trust with God. As he said in verse 12, you are my God from everlasting. You are my God and you're from everlasting. He has the benefit of eternal perspective. How is our perspective? He doesn't understand why an entire city must suffer, but he knows from personal experience that God is good by calling him my holy one. I know that you're good. I don't understand it. It's almost like he's moving through different stages of grief in chapter one. Um, You know some of the stages of grief. First one being isolation. Uh, God, you're not hearing me. I feel like I'm all alone here. I feel isolated in this situation because you're not doing anything. Next one, anger, keeps repeating the question, why? Why, God? Why are you allowing this? Why aren't you doing this? Denial, when Habakkuk hears the news, he immediately goes into denial phase. Whoa, holy one, we're not going to die. That's that's not going to be us. That's not going to be our fate. And then he starts to bargain with God. He repeats what he just heard. Wait, you ordained them for judgment? Then he begins to make his case by saying, uh, no, 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 you, your eyes can't see wrong. You can't behold evil. Starts to kind of bargain with him. And then it appears that he moves understandably into depression as he um, again starts to dwell on the hopelessness of the situation. You made men like fish, God. You made like men like fish that could just be caught up in a net without a leader. And then in a couple of weeks when we finish up this book, we're going to find that Habakkuk moves into the acceptance phase as he sings a song of praise to the Lord. And worship team, come back up. Um, as we just got done studying, there can be joy in the midst of our trials. Remember that God is more concerned with your salvation and a relationship than he is with your prosperity and with your comfort. It might feel like he's destroying you, but he has a greater purpose in mind. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's writing to the church about sexual immorality. There's a guy in the church who is living in blatant sin, and he won't stop, 
And so Paul says this. He says, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. This was, the, this was one, honestly, that I read a while ago. It didn't make sense to me. What do you mean, hand this guy over to Satan? Kick him out of the church. Let him experience the consequences of his sin so that he gets to the point where he repents and he comes back and he can be saved. Because if you keep enabling his sin, he's not going to change his ways. You need to throw him out. And so Israel and Judah are getting thrown out, so to speak, to have their flesh dealt with. Israel fell in 722 BC. Judah fell around 598 BC, quite a long ways afterwards. Didn't learn their lesson by looking at their brothers that fell. So that's what's happening in Israel and Judah. Now, eventually, God does judge the Babylonians. Eventually, a remnant does repent and does come back, and God restores them to right relationship. But without that right relationship, no amount of prosperity or protection or security means anything. It doesn't mean anything if we don't have that relationship with Him. Uh, we live in a world that is hell-bent on violence and destruction. That's why Jesus came here. It was God's ultimate appeal to the world that has been on violence and their own comfort. If God seems distant or disinterested, right? Some people would even call him cruel. If he seems distant or disinterested, all we have to do is just look at the cross. That's all we have to do. Just look at the cross. The God of Habakkuk is the same God of the New Testament. He's the same God. He doesn't change. So what's the difference? Jesus. Jesus is the difference. When Jesus was on the cross, he took all the consequences. He took all the wrath that was meant for us, for our sin, and he took it on himself. Uh, we were doing children's church once upon a time, and the theme of the teaching was God's in a good mood, which I thought was really weird. What do you mean God's in a good mood? Well, all of his wrath, all of his holy anger was satisfied when it was poured out on Jesus on the cross. So anytime we feel like um, we're doubting his love, all we have to do is look what he did on the cross. So Habakkuk has filed his complaint. And next week we'll listen to God's response again. Uh, both a reassurance that this isn't going to go on forever, that there will be a day where judgment comes and his people are saved and put in right relationship. And also the verse that sums up this whole book, really, that the righteous shall live by faith. The verse that has changed so many people's lives, Martin Luther being one of them, the great reformer, changed his life. The righteous shall live by faith, which is what we have to do every single day. When life looks grim, when things look bad, when we don't understand what's happening around us, we have to live by faith. That's what we're going to talk about next week. 